Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, June the 3rd, 2023. It's a month and a day before you know what, July 4th, the symbol of independence in America, the symbol of of freedom, at least in a calendar form, in terms of celebrating an anniversary of American supposed freedom, although not everyone would necessarily agree. Of course, Bruce Springsteen famously sang about Independence Day, that we should say goodnight. And many of the other characters we've had on the show have also been somewhat ambivalent about the Symbols of freedom associated with Independence Day. We had a, a writer, David Fleming, on the show a couple of weeks ago. He had a who he has a new book out, "Who's Your Founding Father," uh, in which he suggests that Thomas Jefferson was the ultimate American asshole. So I'm not sure whether uh, everyone is celebrating July Fourth. And of course, there's one group of people who are particularly ambivalent about July 4th, African-Americans who, of course, didn't choose to come here like everybody else. They were brought as slaves. We've done many shows on slavery. One in particular resonates with a, uh, a writer, Sean Kingsley, enslaved the sunken history of the transatlantic slave trade where Kingsley and Simca Jacobici literally dredged up a slave ship to see what life was really like for the slaves. My guest today um, is addressing all these issues in, a, in an intriguing new book, an intriguing new thesis, a new way of thinking about things. Symbols of Freedom, Slavery and Resistance Before the Civil War. He's a very distinguished historian of, of America, particularly of its racial politics. He teaches uh, in Houston, and he's joining us from there, Matthew J. Clavin. I'm not calling you Calvin, Ma, Matt, am I? I didn't fall into that Lutheran No, but you, but you did fall into, it should be Clavin, so you did fall oh, into Oh, I, I, <laughs> when it's a Saturday, can you give me a little bit of space? So It, hap it happens to the it's best. It's Clavin, it's not Clavin, uh, but he, right. uh, he's not Calvin, and he's not a Calvinist, and he's not a Lutheran. He's a historian. <laughs> Matt, in all seriousness, what are you going to be doing in a month and a day's time? Should we be celebrating July 4th, or should we be actually thinking seriously about what all this nonsense actually means? I, th I think it's probably appropriate to do both. And, and I think you need to, everyone uh, should consider... Uh, what this symbol represents to different people. And I think it's a good time to reflect on America's shortcomings, uh, but it's also the perfect time to appreciate America for not only its accomplishments, but also maybe even more importantly for its aspirations. And if there's anything I learned uh, writing this book, Symbols of Freedom, is that for African-Americans, enslaved people, um, some of these people who you would think would be the least likely to want to celebrate American independence or, you know, celebrate the 4th of July or the idea of American freedom. They have always been at the forefront of those willing um, and clamoring for others to do exactly that. Yeah, it's an astonishing fact. We've sort of touched on this before in the show. I did a 
show with my old friend Yasha Munk, a very distinguished political scientist. He talked to us about the paradoxes of American patriotism in the black community. In terms of your research for this book, how did it work? Did the slaves pick up on the ideology of freedom, the symbols of freedom, and simply say, well, we have as much right to it as anyone else? Or, 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 or was it a more subtle way in which they picked up these symbols of freedom? Well, yeah, I don't think it was subtle at all. <clears throat> I think that most Americans and many Americans today, they take the language of American freedom um, almost as a rhetorical flourish, if you will. Um, it's just rhetoric. It's rhetorical nationalism. Um, but what I was sort of shocked to find, and I've been finding it for years now, is how um, these enslaved people who are literally you know, considered chattel legally across the South, and we're talking about the antebellum pre-Civil War decades, um, they, they took this stuff literal. And they took the declaration literal and they took the idea that all men were created equal, very literal. Um, and not only did they take that language literally and the promise of American freedom, they also, and I think this is probably most important and interesting, they took the whole idea that the United States was a nation, it was a republic born in blood, warfare, revolution. And they took that to heart. They took that literal. And they took it as this is our justification. In fact, it's more than justification. It's our obligation to prove ourselves as Americans by fighting, not for our independence politically, but for our freedom and fighting against tyranny and oppression. We did a show earlier this week with another really distinguished um, American historian, Chad Williams, uh, has a new book out on the First World War and African-Americans Association with that associated with W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the great intellectuals in African-American history. I wonder in terms of what you're talking about, was this, I, I don't know if I would want to call it an ideology, this way of thinking, was it led by particular individuals or was it simply a, a, a popular inevitable response to the experience of African-American slavery and supposedly the land of the free? Yeah, I, I don't want to be that guy who doesn't who doesn't choose sides, but it's both. I think there are instances, especially with the abolition movement, uh, people like Frederick Douglass come to mind. Um, they are they are leading this this fight for change uh, and, and oftentimes revolutionary change. But what I find in the antebellum South on plantations from Florida to Texas, from Charleston, South Carolina to Richmond, Virginia, there's no leadership whatsoever. There's no centralized funneling of information and ideology, but that idea of American freedom, it just percolates. Um, and I think what I found- It chimed, it chimed. I mean, yeah, we're of course the antebellum South we're talking about, not just pre-internet, pre-television, pre-radio, pre-mass mm. printing. How did African-American slaves in the in the antebellum South, who were working on these plantations hundreds of miles from cities right. with, without any access to media, how did they even learn about the ideology of American freedom? Well, I'll say there's, regardless of where you live, you could live 300 miles from New Orleans, 300 miles from Baltimore, 300 miles from St. Louis. But you know, if you're on a plantation, if you're on a small farm, a small town, uh, one of your acquaintances, at least, if not you yourself, 
has been to New Orleans, Baltimore, or St. Louis, or you are meeting people, or there are, there's printed literature from those ports. You know, William Wells Brown is, is an enslaved man most of the early decades of his life, and he's a teenager, and at the time he's in St. Louis. I think he was from Kentucky originally. And he is able to, on a 4th of July, he just is, is in a town square in St. Louis, and he hears a 4th of July speech by a U.S. senator. Um, and, and among other things, this, this senator says, he, he literally recites the preamble of the Declaration, we all know all, the idea that all men are created equal. And according to Brown's daughter, who writes sort of a biography a couple of decades later, she says this was the turning point in Williams's life. Um, when he hears this as a 16, 17-year-old boy, he just internalizes it. And so it's just this crazy idea that African-Americans, although legally unfree, legally property, they are participating in Fourth of July celebrations, ceremonies. They're listening to these orations. So you don't even have to be literate in the antebellum South. If you know someone who, who, who is aware of this information, if you hear a speech, you hear the fireworks. It makes you wonder, what is going on? Why is everybody celebrating? And, and it really does, again, it, just, it trickles down to, to the, 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 the darkest corners of, of the plantation South. It's, it's pretty remarkable. It is an astonishing story, and, and even more astonishing, one irony upon ironies, is you seem to suggest in the book, Matt, that the, the, the hardcore supporters of slavery in the South, because of the way in which African-American slaves embraced July 4th, they, they, they wanted to transform July 4th into less of an American festival. It's bizarre. <clears throat> yes, and, and there's been some good scholarship out there on, you know, what sort of makes an American holiday. And some have argued that, you know, you really become an American holiday when people forget the ideology behind that day, you know, and, and not just national holidays, but like Christmas has become this commercialized, um, you know, instrument of capitalism. Oh, Thanksgiving, for, which is a uniquely American holiday. For sure. And, th you know, Fourth of July is about fireworks and barbecues and beer uh, and baseball has very little to do with, you know, the Declaration of Independence at this point. Martin Luther King Day has now become sort of just a day that people celebrate a day off from work. They don't necessarily, you know, internalize and in any way, shape or form, try to embody King's good works. Um, so it really is this this thing that holidays can lose their meaning. And certainly in the South before the Civil War, you see slave owners, their allies and supporters, they really speed up the process and they try to depoliticize the holiday. It's fascinating. The idea of, 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 of slaveholders depoliticizing July 4th yeah. because African-American slaves embraced it. Right. Uh, how, how did this play out in the North, particularly amongst white opponents of, of slavery? We did a show I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Linda Hirschman's excellent book, The Color yes. of Abolition, about Frederick Douglass <clears throat> right. um, and a number of her white allies, uh, Douglass's white allies in the struggle against slavery. Yeah, and one of the core books that sort of inspired me when I was writing this, you know, originally it was Pauline Meyer, famous historian, and she wrote this great book about the declaration called uh, Sacred Scripture. And much to the surprise of a lot of readers, including myself, the Declaration was not really celebrated uh, as a document 10, 20, 30 years after its, its appearance. 
And, you know, even all the way through the Civil War, it's the Constitution, it's the Constitution, it's the Constitution. That is considered widely to be America's founding text. But by the time of the 1830s, when you get the organized abolition movement in the United States, you do get these abolitionists in the North. So at the exact same time that white Southerners are really pushing to depoliticize the holiday and to just make it about all these abstract things and, you know, and just food and, and alcohol and things of that nature, Northerners, these abolitionists, white and black, male and female, uh, urban, rural, rich, poor, they're starting to say, wait, no, 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 wait a minute. The Constitution is great. We love what it offers. But if we really want the United States to be everything it can be, um, if we want it to be exceptional, and they, you know, that's, that's their ideology. Um, they believe in American exceptionalism, you know, aspirationally, possibly. And they say, well, one way we can reach, one way the, the nation can reach its incredible potential is to stress that's the declaration that it's our founding document. It's the egal radical egalitarianism of the Declaration of Independence that should be our goal, should be the star, not the Constitution. And so there really is this incredible bifurcation, reverse trajectory, where in the antebellum South, you know, the 4th of July is being um, neutered almost, whereas in the North, it's starting to enjoy more than a room, it's not a renaissance, um, but, a, but a birth of, of celebration and a new appreciation. And then ultimately with the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address, you know, when Lincoln starts that oration, he does not invoke the Constitution. He invokes the Declaration. Yeah, it's interesting. And then this really resonates with Fleming's book. I'm not sure if you've seen it about who yes. really wrote the Declaration of Independence. Right. Did it come from Jefferson or did it come from uh, the Mecklenburg people? So, right. and I guess what you're saying then is that even before the Civil War, this established the the ideological cleavage, even before yeah. the, the, the war broke out about who was America and what was America. It still does, I, I would argue. And, you know, that you can, there are the, the, the people who, who worship at the altar of the U.S. Constitution and, you know, you can make the argument that, you know, the, the Constitution is amendable. It's been amended more than two dozen times. It's an imperfect, flawed document. Uh, the founders admitted that it was, a, it was an imperfect document. They were fallible people, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just this sort of plastic text that is meant to be uh, amended periodically, you know, changed generationally. Uh, you don't really hear that about the Declaration, though. The Declaration just is this profound statement of human rights. Um, and so it's it's just sort of this, the two documents are important, but different. And I, and I think there's people today who will still argue that the declaration was meant for a small select group of people, you know, people who look like the founding fathers, you know, white men, middle-aged, highly educated, elite, wealthy, where there's a lot of people who say no, despite it saying all men are created equal, uh, that was really intended ultimately for women, for people of color. For indigenous people, you know, and, and the debate goes on and on. So the same issues that we're wrestling with today, um, they were wrestling with 200 years ago. The gendered issue has come up a lot in in in, in the show over the years. Matthew too yeah. um, did a wonderful uh, a wonderful show uh, with Martha S. Jones on uh, the struggle for Black women to vote. Vanguard also with my old friend Carol Anderson. Uh, on American voting, particularly African-American voting. Did um, uh, female and male slaves, did they respond differently? Did women 
Slaves, for example, did they embrace the symbols of freedom more deeply, more passionately or differently from men? Or is it hard to generalize again? I'm, I'm smiling because I was hoping you would ask that question. Uh, I would say they, they embraced it identically. And I have multiple examples, but, you know, Harriet Tubman comes to mind. But another lesser known example is a woman named Elizabeth Blakesley. Uh, she's an escaped slave from North Carolina. Um, she had been tortured on her plantation for trying to escape previously. Part of her ear was nailed to a pillory and she tore it off. I mean, just the typical stuff, um, sadly, of American slavery. But at one point, she sneaks aboard a ship in, I think it was Raleigh, North Carolina. She, ma she makes her way to New England, but, but en route, um, they suspect she's on board. They try to, what's called, smoke the cabin, where they burn all this disgusting stuff that's supposed to make you come out. She doesn't come out. And when she finally makes it to freedom in Massachusetts, she says, you know, I decided at one point on that ship, she said, I was going to have liberty or death, you know, exclamation point. And, and it's, it's really remarkable um, for a and it sounds, person. yeah, and what's really remarkable is the language that people like Tubman and, and the woman you're talking about use is identical to the language of the revolution. It is. And, and whether that was intuitive or spontaneous right. or learned, uh, right. how, did, how did that work? Yeah, well, I, it's funny because there's so many accounts of escaped slaves who a decade later will, you know, with the help of an abolition society, publish a slave narrative. You know, whereas Blakesley, she says this, you know, the, the second she gets off the boat. So it's very authentic um, and genuine. You, but you have these slave narratives that come out 5, 10, 15 years after someone's escaped. And it sort of begs the question, you know, is this an abolitionist editor, you know, giving them the, the, these words? Or is it their words or is it their thoughts? Um, but I have found enough accounts of you know, enslaved people in the South when they are running away, when they are rebelling, they literally cry out liberty or death. And so th this, this idea reveals itself in, very way, in varying ways, different times and places. But whether a slave 10 years after they free liberate themselves, whether they, you know, they, they might remember, they might think that they remember that they said to themselves liberty or death. But I think that's kind of missing the point. The point is that whether it was contemporaneous or 10 years later, black men and women enslaved, they're, they're thinking of themselves in the same context as an American revolutionary founding father. So in other words, this, this escaped woman, a mother from North Carolina, she is identifying with the plight of the founding fathers from the late 18th century. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really crazy if you think about it. It is. And would the next step, Matt, be in this as in, in histori historiographical terms to suggest mm -hmm. that these are the real founders of the American Republic? I, I, you wouldn't be the first to say so. Um, this idea of the black founders, um, you know, going back to the Stoneo Rebellion, the 1730s. And when I teach the Stoneo Rebellion. Yeah, I mean, you, you wrote the book, uh, The Battle of Negro Fort, the rising right. fall of a fugitive slave community. So you know all about the, the bloodshed yeah. associated with this stuff. Right. And you, you have African natives who survived the Middle Passage. They are rebelling in the 18th century in South Carolina. And, and they're using the word liberty. You know, during the American Revolution, they're, they're wearing shirts with, you know, liberty on it or liberty or death. And so it's like, so here are people of African descent, some of them African natives, and they are the real freedom fighters, right? They're, they're the ones fighting for actual, you know, bodily freedom. And so they certainly deserve to be, be considered alongside 
the the quote unquote yeah. founding fathers for sure. And, and they're the real patriots compared to these odd characters waving the Confederate flag on January sixth, <laughs> aren't they? Yeah, that's that is uh, to to say the least, right? Um, and and I think what's really interesting is you can. Uh, wave all the flags you want. You can sing all the, the national anthems that you want, but there's the idea of acting like a patriot or, you know, acting like an American. Um, well, then thinking... you're moving away from your thesis because I guess for the January 6th crowd, uh, the Confederate flag for them is a symbol of freedom. For, for them, yeah. Well, the Confederate flag is a symbol of slavery, among other things. And so it's now where it gets interesting is if you have uh, capital rioter with an American flag in their hands. And in their minds, they're the true revolutionaries. And arguably, in their mind, they are doing what the founding fathers would have intended them to do. Um, so it does get to be a slippery slope. I mean, what do you say as a historian to one of these January 6th characters who in one hand carries the American flag and on the other, the Confederate flag? Do you just say, you don't get it? Uh, I, I say treason is never something a patriot would, an act that a, a true patriot would ever commit. Um, you know, John Brown is loved and hated in the historical community. And, you know, he, one thing he made clear before the Harper's Ferry invasion was that he and his small army of black and white men, they were going to, if they were going to march under a flag, it would be the U.S. flag. And, you know, Brown will eventually be executed for treason. I believe he's the first person in the United States. Um, but he, he was adamant. He said, we're not trying to destroy America. We're trying to save America. And we may have to kill some white Southerners to do it, but we will do it under the flag. Uh, we will do it as Americans. And, you know, be damned you if you don't think this is, you know, American patriotism. He certainly thought it was, and so did his followers. How much overlap was there between the symbols of political freedom that you found in your research and shall we say the symbols of spiritual freedom that was um, that was developed by the African American preaching community and the church and the Christian movement? Yeah, there's a great deal of overlap, and you know, I'm reminded of all the the millennialism that was so profound among abolitionists in the early to mid 19th century. And so there certainly is a spiritual component to this, but but if pressed. I think it's also very bifurcated. I think people have multiple identities, people can have multiple loyalties. And so you have a lot of people who are, I would call them Christian zealots, even Frederick Douglass, uh, you know, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, without a doubt. But at the same time, they have a nationalist streak that can be very separate from their, from their Christian ideology. But both, but both are pointing in an anti-slavery, radical abolition, abolitionist direction, interestingly enough. What about the issue of, of, of economics and American identity? We've done shows on the deep ties between slavery and Wall Street with Jonathan Daniel Wells. Mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of thinking of themselves as free Americans, as symbols of freedom, they were enslaved by an anti-market system. Did they also embrace the free market? For the most part, I would say yes. I mean, you don't see, and, and what you know, the evidence that I'm focusing on is, is almost uniquely that moment of resistance, you know, the flashpoint, the, the, the boarding a ship, uh, the grabbing a, a pistol from the overseers, 
uh, dresser and, and running northward, um, you know, doing these things sometimes spontaneously, sometimes planned. And the motivation comes from these, you know, American or nationalist symbols. As to their uh, commitment towards American capitalism, you know, American inequality or anything of that nature, wage labor, they might demonstrate that later. But it's not really something that reveals itself at the time of resistance. That being said, you know, these escaped slaves, these um, men and women who do manage to make it to the north, oftentimes to Canada, they do almost across the board demonstrate an affinity for American culture, be it, you know, economic, social, cultural, political. And they do as Americans. Um, they're not trying to they're not real dissenters in, in, in any respect other than they want their freedom as much as anybody else. It's a great question, a great idea to consider. In, uh, in my conversation with Chad Williams, who's written Wounded World, this book about uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War, we also talked about his intellectual and personal enmity with Marcus Garvey. Uh, as it happened, Du Bois, of course, died in Ghana, but he still was not really an Africanist. Does your argument in, in an odd way undermine the, the Africanism or the Pan-Africanism of writers and thinkers like Marcus Garvey? Possibly, yes. You know, and, you know, so there's, like I said, I think my response would be that you, you can be of two faiths. You can be of two nations. You can be a Northern nationalist, um, an African-American nationalist, and a U.S. nationalist all at the same time. Um, that being said, the book makes it very clear that oftentimes when push came to shove, these escaped slaves, rebel slaves, these abolitionists, they chose you know, U.S. nationalism as the paramount, you know, personal and communal identification. Um, and, and that is probably going to surprise some readers and may not sit well with, with all readers. Um, and, you know, David Walker is a great example, a great black intellectual, black radical. And he is always held up, rightly so, as, as one of the founders of black nationalism. But if you read his appeal, he says over and over again, we are Americans. And he actually says we're more American than white Americans because we bled for this country. We have built this country. And he, you know, no one takes American revolutionary nationalism to heart more than David Walker. So while I would argue he's a black nationalist and a U.S. nationalist, again, if, I think if push comes to shove, I think he's a U.S. nationalist primarily. And that is, again, it's, it could be controversial, may not sit well with everyone, but I think that's what the evidence reveals. And what does it suggest about the ongoing debate in the African-American community about identity, uh, which in many ways was begun with the the debate between Booker T. Washington and Du Bois? I'm guessing that Du Bois would prefer your book to Booker T. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. That's a, that's a great point. But I just think in the African community in general, much like the larger American community, there's such a such an ease or such a convenience in expressing, you know, strong, critical, anti-American, anti-nationalist sentiment for very good reason, for obvious reasons. But all I can point out is that at a moment in time where, where you would bet the house, you bet the farm that it would be very difficult to find black Americans, free or enslaved, who really were willing to fight and die for American ideals. When you were least likely to find them, they were everywhere. 
And so it's just, it's just this fascinating thing where today people are so, again, it's easy and convenient to, to look at the American flag and, and to see the, the, the ill, the, the, the negatives, the, the lack of accomplishment. Um, but 200 years ago, there were people um, in chains. Literally, the, the book, my book starts with this incredible anecdote where these, a slave coffle is being marched in front of the U.S. Capitol post-war of 1812. And one of the slaves, he holds up his hands, faces the U.S. Capitol, and, and begins to sing the national anthem at the time. And you know, it's a political protest. I like to think of it as the first march on Washington. And so here's a, a, an enslaved man being bought and sold like cattle, yet he still recognizes that he is in a nation that has these incredible ideals that need to be celebrated despite uh, the lack of accomplishing those ideals. And so today, it's, you know, th just the way people, African-Americans and others view um, the founding fathers, the founding ideals, the declaration, the flag, the fourth, it's very complicated and, and very understandably so. But there's two sides to every story for sure. Your book is, of course, written as all good histories with one eye on our current situation. We've done many shows about divisions in America, David French, for example, Right. asking whether there's still value in the American experiment. Many shows we, we've done about uh, Black Lives Matter and, and the politics of identity. I'm guessing that in a way, perhaps, the, the people most wedded to the politics of identity and of race would be slightly uncomfortable with what you've dug up in Symbols of Freedom. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's very fair. And, and, and again, there's such an... If, if any intellectual today and not just people who work on college campuses and not just writers and um, historians. And I mean, just there's, it's, we live in a world today that is increasingly, as we all know, it's people try to make it simple and black and white and no gray areas, but, you know, smart people know that, that the world and its history is, is the grayest of grays and there's no easy, there are no easy answers. There are no easy solutions. Um, but I think that the evidence speaks for itself. And I think that's the most important thing. And, and trust me, I think I've made some arguments in this book that surprised me. You know, Frederick Douglass, and I, I'm, I'm a Baltimore native. I grew up on the history and lore of Frederick Douglass. I walked the streets enthralled uh, as I walked down the streets that, that Frederick Douglass lived on and walked on and worked on. Uh, and, and, you know, at one point in his life in the 1850s, he sort of defies much of the organized abolition movement, which is very critical of the Constitution and refers to it as a pro-slavery document. And, and Douglas just rejects it. And Douglas becomes adamant that, that the Constitution is an anti-slavery document. And I disagree with Douglas. Um, but ultimately, Douglas does do a good do it because a good, do, good job of encouraging me to at least consider that the Constitution could be interpreted as an anti-slavery document, the way it doesn't use the word slave or Negro the way it refers to enslaved people as persons. Um, so there, there, there are little things in the Constitution that make it less than a fully pro-slavery document. I'd be willing to go that far. But I think as a historian, all we can do is just you know, interpret the documents as they were sort of meant to be interpreted. And oftentimes there's only one way to interpret the documents, and you just have to reveal that whether it agrees with your personal um, feelings or ideology. It, it, that's just what has to be done. There are so many people in America, of course, uh, Matt, who want to get 
beyond race to create a, a post-racial world where we're not judged or thought of in terms of the color of our skin. Uh, do you think your book is suggesting that to do that, if we look at history, America was always post-racial? No, but I think that is certainly the goal, right? I think that's, I think what we could learn or take away from the book is that this modern um, aspiration to be post-racial society, that it's not a pipe dream, that it's possible. And boy, it's not easy. And we're not anywhere near the finish line. But goodness gracious, we have to admit how far we've come. And not just from the, the end of slavery days, but from the end of Jim Crow the end of, you know, legalized segregation in the 20th century. And there's still some of the police brutality, the economic inequality, the incarceration rates. I and mean, we're not even close. Right. But but there's a there's a there's an end game to this. And I think what is important and just kind of really cool to imagine is that for people today who think that there is hope, that think that there is a possibility of a post-racial society, country, world, um, that this was the same dream they had 200 years ago. Doesn't mean we're going to get there any day soon. But goodness gracious, there needs to be, I think, a path forward. And, and, and the dream has to be kept alive. And, and I certainly think and hope the book does that. And how can we keep the, the, the dream alive finally, Matt, on uh, July 4th? Can we eat hamburgers or hot dogs and watch the fireworks? Or should we be doing something else? Well, that's, that's what I'm going to do. So I can get back to you on that. But I think, yeah, I mean, you, you celebrate the day. Um, but you have to understand that the, the root of the holiday and the, 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 the initial meaning of the holiday, and it's not just political independence, the United States separating from Great Britain. It's the language they use to do it. And it's the philosophy of equality, radical philosophy of, of full equality at the time. And if you don't remember that, then the holiday is just it loses its meaning and it loses its value. You, you, you can you can eat and drink all you want and go to as many baseball games as possible. But you should have some sort of conversation. You should read something, you should talk to people about the origins of that holiday. Otherwise, it's it, it can be a very uh, futile uh, project.